Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Hey folks, we're going to jump into the show here in just a second. But first, if you're only listening to the free portion of the Bob Seska Show on Apple Podcasts. Wait, wait, wait. This is taking far too long. Ben Shapiro from the Ben Shapiro Podcast. I'm blitzed on stimulants right now so I can tell you as quickly as possible, literally at the speed of sound itself, to not support Bob Seska's Patreon page at bobseskashow.com vis-a-vis patreon.com slash bobseskashow. He talks too slowly and so do his co-hosts. And everyone knows the faster someone talks, the smarter he sounds. So seriously, don't sign up for Bob's Patreon. Thank you. I'll be over here waiting for puberty. Come on, puberty. Again, that's bobseskashow.com. Bookmark it and send it to all your friends and we thank you in advance. And now let the cartoons begin. The Bob Seska Show. Bob Seska. Today's Rachel Maddow Show Award for Headline Excellence goes to Bob Seska. The Bob Seska Show. From our nation's capital, it is Wednesday, August 18, 2021, and this is the interview edition of the Bob Seska Show on the Sexy Liberal Podcast Network. Hi, my name is Bob. Hello. Hello, Bob. Hello. Day 211 of the Biden-Harris administration, 447 days until the 22 midterms. Find me on Instagram at TheBobSeska and on Twitter at BobSeska underscore go. Yeah, we've got Spencer Ackerman here today. You might know Spencer from his reporting for The Daily Beast, Wired, The Guardian, The New Republic. He's also the author of a brand new book called Reign of Terror, How the 9-11 Era Destabilized America and Produced Trump. Link in the description at bobseska.com. The book takes a hard and often harrowing look at how 9-11 led us on an inevitable path to Afghanistan, Iraq, the exploitation of fear by the Bush administration, the war on terror itself. We're also going to talk about the American withdrawal from Afghanistan, of course, and what that's going to mean for the broader war on terror. Meantime, if you dig this show, make sure to sign up for our bonus content at bobseskashow.com. Okay, put on your foreign policy and national security hats as we visit with author and journalist Spencer Ackerman. I assume given the subject of your book, uh, your phone has got to be ringing off the hook this week, huh? Yeah, kind of. (laughs) busy busy man Uh, you've actually been to Afghanistan I want to start there tell me what you observed on the ground when you were there uh, the conditions there Uh, how untenable was our presence at the time Um, one of the things that I'll always take away from reporting from Afghanistan is a story I tell in the book about one of the um, few acts of actual battlefield heroism uh, that I, I observed and it underscored the way in which the war was entirely untenable. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes uh, the war told uh, the soldiers and Marines who fought it 
that what their mission had to be was to aggressively uh, pursue, close, and kill uh, terrorists mm-hmm. or people they presumed to be, you know, terrorists and insurgents. That's right. Other times they said that the imperative in the war was to protect uh, the pop- the populations of, uh, you know, Afghanistan, Iraq, and so forth. That's right. Um, from uh, predation, either by uh, the um, insurgency uh, or even sometimes by um, allied governmental forces, um, and also kind of tacitly um, not to commit uh, mm. such uh, predatory acts themselves. And then also it told uh, those who fought the war that sometimes uh, the imperative was to partner with local security forces in uh, institutions um, that the United States rebuilt after uh, the invasions during the occupations Mm -hmm. um, in order to make sure that they would functionally work themselves out of a job, that as the um, Afghan, in this case, uh, mentees got better, um, the U.S. would have less to do and could sort of seamlessly hand over the task uh, to them. Yeah. Then what I observed uh, in a part of eastern Afghanistan um, called Paktia province uh, in a small place called Zormat um, near the Pakistani border mm-hmm. uh, was a case where um, an American uh, a cavalry platoon uh, goes to pursue a weapons cache um, of like fenced American um, weaponry. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and goes in a kind of hairy way uh, to um, a compound uh, where a bunch of women live. And uh, they meet up with the Afghan police because uh, restrictions um, uh, at the time say that uh, the Americans can't enter an Afghan's house without you know, Afghan accompaniment. And th- this was a group of older women, right? Uh, elderly Afghans? Some were very elderly. Others were, were, were not so much. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, then what happens once they go in, they come out with uh, the guy they were looking for. Um, in this case, uh, who the women had been sheltering. Mm-hmm. Um, and they take him, uh, you know, they put flex cups on him, they take him to custody. And then one of the Afghan policemen goes back inside uh, as all of these women are outside uh, wailing and moaning uh, at the fact that they had just had their home invaded, yeah. um, including by foreigners. And uh, one of the policemen um the guy who ends up going back inside like has uh, a pole uh, and he starts kind of swinging it like dangerously near uh, these women. And one of them who's, who's very old um, and very small uh, like topples over and like takes a bit of a spill. And now the women are really upset. Hmm. This guy goes inside the compound and comes out with their motorcycle uh, revs the engine and it was very clear to, to me and, you know, to everyone else, certainly to those women, what was happening here. Uh, the Afghan police were robbing the place. Yeah. And uh, there was uh, an American platoon sergeant uh, who in the book uh, I call Sergeant Rob, mm-hmm. uh, who quickly goes over to his lieutenant um, and says that the lieutenant has to take action here. We can't stop uh, the Afghan police. We have to stop the Afghan police from you know, stealing this. Uh, motorcycle. And, you know, at first the lieutenant, you know, as is, you know, very often the case with uh, lieutenants, is kind of hesitant and not totally sure, you know, which of the imperatives of the war is the operative one in this moment. 
but Sergeant Rob, uh, like um, like a good um, non-commissioned officer, officer is supposed to do, uh, steers the lieutenant uh, toward the right thing to do mm-hmm. and informs the Afghan policeman that he's not leaving with the motorcycle. The Afghan police at that point decide, all right, the mission is over. If you want to go find that weapons cache, good luck to you, but we're heading back uh, to the station. And that, that was what passed for heroism right. uh, in Afghanistan. That was a circumstance in which uh, people in a place halfway around the world uh, uh, where they didn't speak the language had to navigate between uh, what the war was supposed to be like mm-hmm. and what reality was. And they had in very small moments, so numerous in accumulation over 20 years of war to make those decisions and those decisions guided the course of the war. Individually, they might not have had more than a tactical impact. Collectively, they were the Afghanistan war. It's striking to hear these stories of heroism and to know that it was ultimately in service of this futile effort there where the outcome was always going to be inevitable. I mean, the, the word that keeps crossing my mind for the past several days is inevitable. Eventually, this was all going to fall apart the way it has. Absolutely, it was doomed to yeah. fail. Uh, the, 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 the war on terror is, is, you know, conceptually doomed from the start. The war mm-hmm. in Afghanistan, it, it's amazing, you know, it, and, and many people are perhaps too young to remember. But shortly after invading Afghanistan, there was uh, this round of discourse about how, you know, Afghanistan was the graveyard of empires. Yeah. Uh, you know, Alexander the Great could not conquer Afghanistan. Uh, the British could not hold Afghanistan. The Russians could not hold Afghanistan. That this was a pretty astonishing historical constant. It was, in mm-hmm. fact, uh, one of the historical constants that the CIA relied on uh, in the 1980s in order to fuel uh, the Afghan insurgency against the Soviet occupation. Yeah. And once Kabul fell and American uh, television cameras broadcast children streaming out into the streets, flying kites, um, Kabul coming kind of back to life after the repression of the Taliban, all of that evaporated in mm-hmm. a swell of hubris yeah. that said that the United States, as it sees itself, is the exception here that American exceptionalism had been vindicated, that it would be America that could do this impossible task. Mm -hmm. And even as uh, America recognized, this is very characteristic, I think, of the United States, that this historical circumstance pertained, it decided it was the exception to it. And in fact, it never was. In December of 2001, shortly after this event happened, pretty much weeks after you know the, the liberation of Kabul, the Taliban bivouac to Kabul. I'm sorry, bivouac to Kandahar, mm-hmm. and they expect to like make a stand there in order to hold their kind of you know ancestral um, you know territory. They're they're on their home court here, right? And it doesn't go their way, and it goes so badly for them at the hands of uh, the U.S.'s Afghan allies that the Taliban decide instead to sue for peace. And they say to uh, representatives of the U.S.'s chosen proxy, Hamid Karzai, that we're going to agree uh, to demobilize, we'll disarm, uh, we will accept um, negotiations uh, to join 
a successor uh, government. The only um, request that we have, the only condition we put on this is that our leader, um, Mohammed Omar, gets to live under some kind of house arrest mm-hmm. um, in, in, in Kandahar. And Karzai, cognizant of Afghan history, particularly recent Afghan history, where the Taliban like waged a civil war and won it, oh, yeah. uh, takes the deal. Mm-hmm. Um, because he recognizes that if the Taliban don't have a political future, then they'll opt for a military future. Right. Donald Rumsfeld gets in front of the Pentagon podium uh, and says that such a deal is unacceptable to the United States of America, which will uh, seek nothing less than unconditional surrender. Mm-hmm. And that's the moment the war is lost. That's the moment where the U.S. takes over Afghanistan Um on an absolutely ignorant and unrealistic definition of what it can possibly achieve. A hubristic refusal to recognize that it had what could pass for victory at low cost in front of its face and decided not to pursue it. Mm -hmm. Everything that happened over the previous 20 years made the Taliban stronger to the point that when uh, the Trump administration, rightly, in my view, uh, pursued a negotiation Um, to end the war with the Taliban, recognizing the Taliban as a fact that was not able to be wished away. It sought the terms that the U.S. rejected in 2001. The difference was that the U.S. had maximum leverage in 2001 and minimal leverage in in 2020. I went to Afghanistan in 2008 and then again in 2010. And I didn't, you know, go everywhere. You know, I don't want to pretend like I was some like, you know, big war correspondent. I spent two months in Afghanistan out of 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, but one thing that I'll always remember is that when I came back in 2010 and flew into Kabul, uh, the streets were vastly more congested than they were in 2008. And the reason for that was all of the refugees from the war from around the country that had swarmed into the capital, where, you know, with the exception of a couple terrorist attacks a year, I don't want to say that to minimize it, Mm -hmm. um, the war primarily was not in Kabul. And when we see the desperation that we've seen um, over the past week, um, given the Taliban victory, uh, it is a mistake to attribute that to America ceasing to fight the war. This is what the war led to. Yeah. These are the wages of the war. This is how America grabbed defeat from the jaws of what could pass for victory. And we should remember that so that we never repeat this again. And we don't force uh, other peoples to suffer through uh, the violent nightmare of the 20 years that America unleashed in Afghanistan. Were we the only delusional ones there, Spencer, or was the Afghan security forces and police, the government from Karzai on down to Ghani, were they all thinking, okay, this is inevitably going to be America bugging out and the Taliban returning to power? Was that kind of a known known, as uh, Rumsfeld used to say, uh, among all the Afghan people? And we were the ones thinking, well, you know, eventually it's everything's going to be fine. The Afghan people know their history in a way that the United States, you know, American people very often, we don't know our own. Mm -hmm. Um, They had no illusions of the way the United States would act. They had no illusions that the United States um, would be able to wage war in Afghanistan forever. Um, You know, as this war went terribly longer um, than than it went well. 
And I was only there during times uh, when it had gone terribly. And what I heard from Afghans was precisely that, that like the United States doesn't, the United States doesn't care about us. The United States is not building these institutions for us. The United States is building these institutions for itself. So it can operate um, and exercise power. um, Its preference is through proxy. That's what the Afghan people understood. So when this all went down um, over this past week with the withdrawal, um, I I assume all of these people who knew that the United States was not there for altruistic purposes, that we had certainly an agenda there. I assume they all now feel vindicated in in that assumption. I don't really think vindication is what Afghans are feeling right now or looking to feel. Um, I don't want to ventriloquize anyone. But, you know, this isn't an argument that's unfolding in Afghanistan. Uh, This is a catastrophe. This is something that is prompting people to run after C-17s, trying desperately to grab a hold of them and then falling to their deaths in the way that, you know, I can only remember watching live as I'm a native New Yorker, uh, 2,900 almost of my neighbors burned to death, and some of them chose to jump from the towers instead. So I don't think this is a moment where people are looking, particularly Afghans themselves, um, at, you know, saying that they were right all along. That's just that's just not the human reaction. Turning now to the war on terror and the post 9-11 era. um, It seems to me as if in recent memory, America has suffered from at least two or three national nervous breakdowns. One that we're experiencing right now, uh, maybe another one in 2009 after Obama was elected in the middle of the Great Recession and all the backlash about that. And of course, in 2001, right after 9-11 into 2002, on and on through the early 2000s. How much of the public support for the war on terror was based on post-traumatic stress from the spectacle of 9-11? I don't think that American foreign policy and national security is remotely meaningfully democratic. Mm-hmm. I don't think I think it is a is a is a major, major mistake uh, to view the war on terror as the result of leaders listening uh, to a popular will. Yeah, there was certainly a bloodlust. I felt that bloodlust myself. Mm-hmm. That was a bloodlust cultivated by media figures and by political figures in order to get the war on terror. Yeah, that was how the interpretations of what had happened on 9-11 were presented uh, to Americans that a an enemy they did not understand um, that was interpreted not based on any of its like actual critiques that it presented um, that had to do with the suffering that Muslims experienced at the hands of America and America's proxies, mm-hmm. um, whether through you know bombing, whether through sanctions, whether through U.S.-backed repression and so forth. Instead, the United States and the Bush administration in particular and a tremendous amount um, of the Democratic Party and uh, journalists um, presented it as instead uh, the twisted uh, quasi-religious justifications uh, for the violence of Osama bin Laden, who for some reason we never you know, think of as what he was, which is a billionaire, mm-hmm. um, who did what billionaires do, and in this case, a rather extreme version of it, which is play with other people's lives. Yeah. And instead, by removing 
uh, those actual material grievances that motivated Al-Qaeda and looking only and presenting only uh, those strange, obscure, and somewhat scary quasi-religious justifications, that allowed the country, that allowed the Bush administration um, in particular, to present a case of an enemy that was pathological, an enemy that uh, only an expansive war that would last a tremendously long time and take uh, tremendous effort um, by the public uh, was was needed. And it mediated um, and I would say you know more than that, it suppressed alternative explanations uh, for the truth. Yeah. And you know we saw 9/11 um, and its culture become what we would now call a cancel culture. Um, think about people like Susan Sontag, who wrote that, you know, bin Laden has like articulable reasons for doing this and is not just like a mindless, bloodthirsty fanatic. It doesn't mean he's not a bloodthirsty fanatic, mm -hmm. but it doesn't mean he's a mindless one. Um, and for that, she gets canceled until yeah. what ultimately becomes, you know, the end of her life. She has to, you know, labor under the burden of being seen as essentially a simp for terrorists. Um, the Dixie Chicks, oh, yeah. uh, sim simply for saying that they were ashamed to be from Texas, uh, like George Bush on the eve of the Iraq invasion, the most popular, one of the most popular country music acts um, in the country and hence the world. Uh, has their CDs like orgiastically destroyed. Mm -hmm. um, that's the culture yeah. um, of 9-11. That's the culture that persists. But it doesn't happen because of some organic desire amongst the public. What had happened was there was in a response to a very real and very deep trauma. Um, I'll never forget um, seeing what my home, New York, was like. Mm -hmm. After this, breathing the smell yeah. of incinerated human beings mm -hmm. uh, for days and days and days. Oh, yeah. um, having the skyline of my city transformed into a monument to horror. Um, our leaders told us the way we had to behave uh, was one that was a door yeah. into... Uh, all of the ugliest, most violent, and most nativist currents in American history. And we had to open that door and let it, like everything from that past, walk through and take power under cover of an emergency. So I don't think it'll do to blame the people. Mm -hmm. um, this, is, this is what leader this, these are responses that leaders cultivated for their interests oh absolutely yeah there was an exploitation of that fear that took place and i can't help but to go back to the 2004 republican convention which was wall to wall 9 11 i mean there's a super edit floating around somewhere on youtube of all the mentions of september 11th or 9 11 either one of those phrases uh just hundreds and hundreds of times they beat it to death they were just leaning on that hot button. They were really just poking everybody in their sense of trauma after experiencing the devastation of 9-11. It was so ultimately exploitative. I'd never seen anything like it. The convention was deliberately in New York for this reason. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, that New York's trauma could be put to violent purpose. Mm -hmm. And I'll never forgive that. Um, I will, you know, I, I, I find it, you know, that, that convention was really, really something. The thing yeah. is, is that the Republican Party, in particular, George W. Bush's political strategist, Karl Rove, 
um, says very early on uh, in the war on terror that this is a path to entrenching and expanding Republican power um, in in the country. That, oh, yeah. that the war on terror um, is something that, he, as he puts it, we can take to the country mm. and it works. It is what um, allows uh, uh, the Republicans to expand control of, of Congress and take the Senate um, in 2002. And it's what allows George Bush to prevail um, in his reelection campaign, even as the disaster of uh, the Iraq occupation is very visible. And one of the reasons that that's able to be successful is because the Democratic Party acquiesces to this instead of challenges it. Okay, we're going to pause here and return to our conversation with Spencer Ackerman in just a second. But first, who doesn't love hanging out in loungewear? Loungewear used to be code for hideously ugly sweatpants. Even your pets were making fun of you. You know they were. But that's a thing of the past, though, with Cozy Earth, the people known for creating luxuriously soft cool sheets made of bamboo somehow. Well, they've done it again. They've taken loungewear to another level with their comfy, super soft selections and gorgeous styles and colors. From wonderful pajama sets, leggings and tees, every item is sourced from Earth-friendly viscose, Yes, from bamboo for enhanced breathability and temperature regulation. You'll find something you can't lounge without at Cozy Earth. See why Oprah described Cozy Earth's pajamas as the softest ever in O Magazine. Best of all, go to CozyEarth.com now, enter the promo code STEPHANIE35, and save 35% on their loungewear and bedding. That's CozyEarth.com, promo code STEPHANIE35. CozyEarth.com. And let's talk about those bags under your eyes. I can't see your bags under your eyes, so I'm not judging you or anything like that. But you know, bags and puffiness under the eyes are a problem for millions of American men and women until now. Introducing the new GenuCell Serum with plant stem cell technology from Chamonix. Susan from New Jersey wrote, quote, I've been using GenuCell for a couple of months. The puffiness around my eyes is gone. Even the crow's feet and small lines have disappeared and they haven't come back. I love your product. I use it under my eyes, around my cheekbones, and on my eyelids, unquote. And with its instant effects, you'll see results in the first 12 hours or your money back. I guarantee it. Order now and get 50% off all GenuCell packages for the summer. Go to lovegenucell.com slash Stephanie. Again, that's lovegenucell.com slash Stephanie. Link in the description. Lovegenucell.com slash Stephanie. Thank you. The Bob Seska Show. Was this all started with the project for a new American century? Were they planning for an event like this and getting, I'm not saying necessarily that there was some sort of conspiracy to create the event, but once it happened, were they prepared with a strategy for how to uh, exploit that event and turn it into some of the foreign policy and national security goals they had in mind? I think that's too kind of overdetermined. Obviously, they didn't anticipate 9-11. What happened was um, a neoconservative um, kind of uh, thought leadership apparatus had um, made an alliance uh, with the regnant kind of um, Nixonian wing yeah. of of the of the Republican Party and the money men, um, including the oil men. Um, so think like uh, the relationship between the neoconservative deputy defense secretary Paul Wolfowitz um, and the Nixonian, um, you know, defense secretary Donald Rumsfeld and Nixonian uh, vice president Dick Cheney. Um, Cheney and Rumsfeld uh, want to use um, 9/11 uh, to demonstrate. Uh, their preferred course for uh, the way America ought to reassert uh, its dominance 
globally after what they considered a period of lassitude mm -hmm. after the end of the Cold War. And it is, you know, neoconservative um, figures like Wolfowitz who go about saying, well, here we've actually laid out the intellectual foundations for this. And we can say that what we are doing uh, is a durable strategy to combat, you know, quote unquote, terrorism by dominating the Muslim world and by transforming it into such a thing that, you know, this is the kind of, you know, euphemistic fantasy yeah. um, that Wolfowitz, you know, put out there that's saying we will expand the zones of freedom. <laughs> and that is what um, we get as a path uh, to, you know, amongst respected people. Um, this was this was this was a respectable opinion. This was not a fringe opinion. Uh, this was not considered an outre opinion. This was disputable and disputed at the time. But this perspective, which is psychotic and civilizationally um, pathologizing, um, the idea that because um, a small cadre of uh, violent fanatics uh, led by a billionaire. Um, was able to execute a catastrophic terrorist attack that this exposed a deep rot across the Muslim world mm -hmm. uh, was a psychotic racist um, fantasy um, that was very useful uh, for the Bush administration and became the way that we invaded Iraq. When people think of neoconservatism now, very often I think they see it as somehow um, in opposition uh, to Donald Trump and MAGA. It was no such thing. It yeah. was the precursor to it. Uh, these these are in a symbiotic relationship with one another. They were entirely happy to unleash these violent nativist currents. They just didn't expect that the wolf would eat them, too. It's kind of remarkable to see the same people who cheered for a massive expansion of our national security state right after 9-11 are currently screeching about the dangers of the deep state. I, Of course, I don't buy the notion of a deep state, but from their perspective, they kind of created the deep state, didn't they? So the difference between a security apparatus and a deep state in the minds of those who have that critique is loyalty. Mm -hmm. Loyalty to a leader. Loyalty to a series of propositions that separate through uh, who signs onto allegiance to them. Real Americans <laughs> from conditional Americans. Yeah. Who was Donald Trump's biggest security validator? It was Michael Flynn. Yeah. Michael Flynn, a creature of the war on terror. Michael Flynn, someone who could legitimately say, as the intelligence chief of the Joint Special Operations Command, and then the intelligence chief of the Afghanistan war, and then as the head of the Defense Intelligence Agency, that he fought personally the war on terror at its worst. And the explanation that he took from that experience is that the United States was at war with Islam. Mm -hmm. And then when he gets fired from the Defense Intelligence Agency, because he's kind of crackers, the interpretation <laughs> that he draws is that, and is willing to sell to Fox News, where he becomes you know, a, a, a talking head, and to the public, is that he has been uh, disgracefully suppressed uh, by craven people who are not prepared to accept that we are in a war with radical Islamic terror. Now, if someone who is the intelligence chief of the Joint Special Operations Command of the Afghanistan war, and then the head of the Defense Intelligence Agency, if that person isn't a member of the deep state, 
then the concept, like in its absurdity, like really is exposed, like in that moment. Yeah. But what they mean by that is that the difference between a deep state and the you know valiant security architecture to protect America is in how civilizationally are you prepared to direct that violence and how prepared are you um, to inflict that violence, not just abroad, but on your domestic opposition, which you come to see as an enemy. The night before January 6th, Michael Flynn goes to Washington, D.C. and greets a crowd of Trumpists after he has already called for the military to annul the election and then decide it in Trump's favor. Mm -hmm. He asks the assembled crowd, many of whom will not just attend the Stop the Steal rally the next day, but continue on um, for the insurrection in the Capitol, and asks them if they're prepared to bleed for their freedom. That is the war on terror. That is how we get from the war on terror to Donald Trump to January 6th. And so now, how concerned are you about guys like Mike Flynn and some other former national security operatives, as well as former uh, members of the Pentagon and so on, are now kind of forming their own Q cell? Uh, Is that something that we should be paying attention to? Or is that just so absurd and so fringy that it's not even worth our time? What do you mean they're forming their own Q cell? Well, they're adherents of Q to an extent. And in fact, there's been a lot of speculation that Mike Flynn was, in fact, Q, although he's not. It's Jim Watkins or Ron Watkins, one of the Watkins guys. Uh, But some of these former national security guys are uh, using their knowledge of Q and that whole universe and combining it with their knowledge of the national security state to somehow undermine the current government or, you know, whatever, whatever their goals happen to be. They're all crazy goals. They're all probably unattainable goals, but they're still out there trying to figure out a way to reassert themselves by piggybacking off of Q. And so so, there's a guy named Michael Scheuer. Um, Michael Scheuer was the founder of the CIA's Osama bin Laden unit. Mm. What that also meant was he was the head of the CIA's renditions group uh, that performed kidnapping operations. Um, This was before 9-11. And uh, he ends up becoming uh, a disgruntled figure and a marginalized figure uh, within the CIA and leaves. Um, He goes on quite a journey um, intellectually and is currently not just a QAnon adherent, but um, I did a piece on him uh, for the for the Daily Beast a couple, maybe like uh, a year and a half ago, um, in which I, I talked to the, the guy about this. But he blogs endlessly um, about how how it is necessary uh, to enact a firestorm to purify America from all of these uh, subhuman non-whites uh, Jews. They're you know. The, the puppet masters of these subhuman non-whites mm-hmm. um, and uh, the Democrats uh, that uh, do their bidding. And it is explicit. It, it is, you know, extremely violent and it has to be taken seriously because this is someone who used to run rendition operations. This is someone who is intimately familiar uh, with, with the CIA. This is someone who is not, you know, out of nowhere um, you know, wish casting, uh, this is someone who ought to be taken seriously. And this is also a circumstance in which the longer we allow the war on terror to persist, the more it's going to produce 
circumstances like this, the more it's going to destabilize America. And I think ultimately, if it's not confronted politically, I don't believe it can be confronted domestically um, through a war on terror. And I don't think it would be a just thing to do to do that. Um, We have to be consistent about these things. Um, Then I think we're, we're in for a greater period of, of danger and destabilization. Do you think one last question for you, Spencer? I know you got to go, but um, with withdrawing from uh, Afghanistan as we have right now, is that starting to close the book on the war on terror, or is this a book that's going to be remaining open for the foreseeable future? I don't want to be fatalistic about anything. I don't believe I have a lot of reasons for for why I, I, I think that is um, a, a, a deep political mistake and one that doesn't have to be made. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, the withdrawal from Afghanistan is by no means the end of the war on terror. You heard the, you know, you heard Biden say on Monday that he reserves the right to bomb Afghanistan as he sees fit. He reserves the right as well, uh, to, as he put it, you know, meet the threats of the future, which is to say permutations of terrorism, uh, in new and, you know, perhaps, um, uh, recoalescing places. So that doesn't sound to me like anything's coming to an end. Mm. That sounds like to me it's becoming, you know, somewhat receded and uh, inconspicuous or less conspicuous. Beyond that, the 2002 authorization to use military force, one of the, the major wellsprings of the war on terror, remains in existence. Yep. So does the Patriot Act. So does the Department of Homeland Security. Mm-hmm. So does ICE. So does uh, the warrant of authorizations for NSA bulk surveillance, which has achieved escape velocity and is now symbiotic with 21st century American, with well, not American, symbiotic with 21st century capitalism, what the Harvard Business School professor Emerita uh, Shoshana Zuboff calls surveillance capitalism. Um, Guantanamo Bay remains open. Uh, the indefinite detention um, apparatus, uh, while, you know, largely fallow at this point, could be spun back up. All of these things continue. All of these things persist. And unless every aspect of it is broken, a future president will reach for these same tools. Mm-hmm. Biden will probably reach for these same tools. Yeah. Incredible. The book is called Reign of Terror, How the 9-11 Era Destabilized America and Produced Trump by the great Spencer Ackerman. Link in the description under this show, under this episode at bobseska.com. Thanks so much, Spencer, and good luck to you, my friend. Uh, It's got to be an insane week for you. Yeah, thanks very much, Bob. Take care. Bye-bye.